0: For a sense of how
1: garbled America's debate over energy has become, consider a poster for a concert. Every summer, some 400,000 music fans descend on Chicago's Grant Park for the Lollapalooza Festival. On this year's poster, a cartoon monkey shreds electric guitar as the park's famous fountain sprays green goo over the city. But last month, an ad appeared for Lollapalooza that looked a little different. The monkey remained, But the headline act would be corporate greed, and the festival sponsored by ExxonMobil, Chevron, and Shell. The mock advertisement was created by the Sunrise Movement, early champions of a Green New Deal to decarbonize America. But instead of calling for an end to fossil fuels, the Sunrise Movement's ad demanded almost the opposite, a cap on gas prices to make fuel more affordable. And the Sunrise Movement aren't the only ones struggling to square their climate ambitions with concerns about pricey oil. I'm Charlotte Howard, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today. Does America have to choose between energy security and tackling climate change? President Biden came to office promising a clean energy revolution that would both slash emissions and strengthen the economy. But that priority has been overtaken by the need to control high oil prices and look tough on Russia. How has the war in Ukraine changed President Biden's energy calculus? And what's left of the green agenda? John Prito has graciously given up the chair this week. He'll be back next week. We're joined this week by Vijay Vithiswaran, who's our energy and climate innovation editor. It's Earth Day, so you're in high demand, Vijay. Good to see you.
0: Yeah, it's good to see you. There's a lot of energy and climate news about, so no rest for the uh, the correspondent covering these areas.
1: And we also have Adris Kaloon. How are you, Adris?
0: I'm well. I'm back in D.C. after a few days of running
2: around Georgia ahead of their Republican primary, which was really exciting. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that at some point.
1: Adrees, you had previously sent me some iPhone pics from your wedding, but this week you sent me the professional ones, <laughs> and now seems like a good time to ask if it's weird if I frame a picture of you and Alice and put it on my desk.
2: Uh, <laughs> as long as as long as that's not the only picture, and you like have your 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 very <laughs> cute children of your own on there. Uh, I
1: I mean to be clear, it's mainly for Alice, who's <laughs> our colleague and covers Wall Street. And is a role model for all
2: women. Um, You you should frame it and put them on her desk because she'll she'll be embarrassed. um, (laughs) And we'll enjoy that.
1: Um, So later on, we'll be talking about the year when the environment first became a major political issue. And we'll visit California to ask how much states can achieve on their own. But first, I wanted to drill down, if you pardon the pun, on the idea of energy security and whether it's changing the Biden administration's priorities on climate. For that, I spoke with Jason Bordoff, who I've called many times. He's the co-founding dean of the climate school at Columbia University. He served in the Obama administration and is an expert on all things energy policy.
3: Before the crisis began, I think we were already worried about the possibility of an energy crisis. Europe barely made it through last winter, only with the luck of warm weather. And many people were concerned that we might be headed toward another commodity super cycle of high prices because of chronic underinvestment in lots of things, including oil and gas. If you approach investment in supply as if you're on track for your climate goals but you don't actually bring down demand and get on track for your climate goals you set yourself up for market crunches and price spikes i think broadly speaking not just in the united states but around the world the consequences of the energy crisis helped remind everyone that we need to do two things simultaneously one is to meet today's energy needs but at the same time we need to move even faster than we were before to reduce dependence on oil and gas to deliver security benefits as well as climate benefits. I don't know what better reminder of that you need than the fact that the United States went from importing two thirds of its oil in 2006 to being a net exporter of oil last year, and yet consumers still feel immense pain at the pump when something happens halfway around the world in Russia.
1: In practice, governments have shown themselves to be pretty bad at doing this, right? And so a question I have for you is, if there's some more support now for energy security, including investment in new gas export plants along the Louisiana coast or new facilities in Europe to accept liquefied natural gas, these are long-dated projects. So is there a risk that we've Invest in fossil fuel infrastructure that then gets baked in and makes it harder to transition away to cleaner sources
3: we need enough oil and gas supply today to be able to meet people's energy needs affordably and securely i think that's not only important economically and geopolitically it's actually good for the energy transition itself because you can't maintain public support for ambitious climate action if people are struggling to pay their bills you can't have an energy transition if you're in the middle of an energy crisis and secondly we should recognize that the response to a severe gas disruption potentially in Europe, if it were to lose access to all or much of Russian gas supplies, uh, the alternative to that in the near term would be coal. So we need to find other sources of supply. The United States in some sense is well positioned for that because uh, shale oil and gas is is different than most other oil and gas because it is so-called short cycle supply. You invest in drilling today, you get your production today, and if you stop drilling tomorrow, the production falls quite quickly. So in some sense, it's transition friendly. There is some degree of longer lived infrastructure that you need to build around that. And you might wanna think about creative mechanisms to think about lower cost of capital for those or, or, or projects that can finance them th- themselves in a shorter period of time than they otherwise would because what you don't want is for people to have a vested financial interest in slowing the pace of change and and be pretty selective in what you're building today. This doesn't mean you go hog wild and just open up the Arctic to, to drilling and, and drill anywhere you want, but there are certain specific pieces of infrastructure you might almost designate as transition assets. We know we need them today, and we know we don't want to need them 10, 15, 20 years from now.
1: High gas prices or petrol prices, depending on where one might be, are really particularly painful this year because of the other inflationary trends that we're seeing. On the other hand, everyone has said for years that subsidizing the price of energy is the exact opposite of what you'd want to do in a sensible climate policy. So what do you make of some calls to help consumers blunt the effect of really high energy prices?
3: Well, I think high energy prices are harmful for consumers, harmful for the economy, and certainly regressive, so they hurt low-income consumers in particular. It is the case also that if we want to see an energy transition, we're probably going to need to do things like impose carbon taxes or uh, have other tools in place that over time uh, mean energy prices are going up, but there's a big difference between a government-imposed policy that achieves that, like a carbon tax, and just high market prices, where you pay a lot more and that revenue goes to Russia or Saudi Arabia or other OPEC countries. If it's a government policy, like a carbon tax, it also means there's government revenue, and then the government can use that revenue how it sees fit, and one of the things I would argue it should do is take that and, to some extent, offer rebates to uh, consumers to cushion the blow, and particularly low-income consumers. It is also the case that we're seeing across Europe. European countries are simultaneously saying we're going to accelerate a transition away from oil and gas. And because people are struggling to pay their bills, they're rolling back fuel taxes, they're subsidizing energy, doing things that are inconsistent with that goal. And I think that is a reminder of why we need to walk and chew gum at the same time so that we can put in place the measures we need to put in place to facilitate a much faster transition away from oil and gas but that is going to take time it's going to take years for that transition to happen
1: Vijay, you've been following this very closely, both Biden's energy policies and Europe's response to the war in Ukraine and thinking about how they might reduce dependence on Russian gas and Russian oil. What do you make of the way that the war has and hasn't changed America's calculus and America's position as an energy exporter?
0: The war has been a dramatic boost to America's position as a likely future exporter, particularly of fossil fuels. Uh, And this, ironically, the Biden policy on this, which has been to create something like a Marshall Plan that is to encourage domestic development of natural gas, particularly in the shale patch, Uh, which had previously been discouraged, let's remember. Just a few months ago, uh, the administration was seen as quite hostile to the oil and gas industry and uh, more supportive of climate goals. They were anti-pipelines. The industry was endlessly complaining about being treated as toxic and and unwanted. Um, What we saw was a big U-turn, of course, with the uh, embargo imposed on Russian imports, which is a bit of a tokenism by the Biden administration, and then an exhortation to, to basically drill baby drill, Ironically, a Trump concept has been revived under Biden to send American freedom-loving, democracy-loving molecules of natural gas to our friends in Europe and maybe other countries too instead of Russian gas. That is a phenomenal U-turn that's going to have tens of billions of dollars worth, if not more, of investment implications. The shale patch is a financial desert. Uh, The the reckless investments by shale companies destroyed $300 billion of investor capital. And so Wall Street had walked away from these guys, and they were in decline. And now they've been given a lease on life. In fact, I'm headed to the shale patch to explore this a bit further in the next few days.
1: I hope you're bringing your audio recorder with you. Uh, I want to pick up, though, on something that you mentioned before turning to Idris, which is this question of short-term emergency and then a long-term response. Because there's a limit to how much more America can export, for instance, of liquid natural gas right now. All the export terminals are pretty maxed out. Um, and then there's investments that are going to be made now that have long-term implications. Do you think that this U-turn that you described locks America into a fossil fuel future?
0: So there's a, a something of a A dance of the seven veils that's being conducted at the highest levels in terms of energy and climate policy. America now is clearly on a trajectory to becoming, uh, once again, a superpower in energy. We're going to produce more and export more of the dirty stuff. But at the same time, the promise is made, not yet substantiated, that on domestic policies... We're going to have very ambitious climate policies that will curtail demand, that will encourage efficiency, uh, boost clean energy and and smart grid and all of the other things that are needed. So the idea is that uh, Washington can do both things and thereby be dirty for others that need it, but not actually use that oil and gas at home. I think that's going to be a tricky one to pull off myself.
1: Idris, you've seen in recent days the Biden administration talk about Opening public lands to drilling again. And we could have a debate about how important that is substantively, but it clearly is politically important too. This is something that the left and his supporters cared a lot about in the campaign. And so I'm wondering whether you think that Biden is digging a hole for Democrats by promoting some of these fossil and fuel investments that he had claimed he wouldn't support.
2: I think it's clear that the politics of this are extremely dangerous, and the White House acknowledges that. VJ made the point about uh, uh, a dance of seven veils going on, and of course that ended with someone's head on a platter. I, I, I think they're aware of that risk, basically. The White House's messaging on this has been to try to blame this as Putin's price hike, which you know I think they have to try, but ultimately is not going to convince that many voters. I think you've also seen uh, some vulnerable Democrats like Raphael Warnock, who's the senator in Georgia, who's running for probably a very tight re-election, have embraced policies like a gas tax holiday. And they are basically frantically searching for ways to demonstrate, as I think the Biden administration is, that they are not hostile to fossil fuel production, particularly um, at this moment. And the problem for the White House is that while it can encourage a lot of things to happen in the short term, it can't do any of the long-term stuff that it wants without Congress. And it's failed to implement its climate agenda so far. Uh, There are some murmurings that uh, maybe they'll be able to get something through before the elections in which they probably lose their uncontested majority. But at, at this point, I think what we actually are getting versus what the Democratic presidential Campaign was about, you know, whose whose climate policy is greener, how many trillions are you gonna spend at this point? If you could just get a few hundred billion, that would be a real accomplishment.
1: We're gonna get into more of the Democrats' plans and the remnants of them in the next segment. But while we're still talking specifically about oil prices, at the beginning of the episode, we gave this example of the Sunrise movement trying to blame big oil companies for high energy prices and talking about imposing an artificial cap on prices at the pump. VJ, what do you think about the president's ability to bring down prices for ordinary Americans?
0: The thing about oil is it's a fungible global commodity. So uh, ultimately, uh, every barrel of oil around the world is connected to every other one in price. I mean, there'll be discounts and different grades, and the geeks will tell you, that, oh, no, it's all very different and complicated. But basically, oil is like bananas in this way. This is perhaps the most liquid global market short of perhaps the currency markets. And so for that reason... It's very difficult for policymakers to influence prices other than uh, reducing or increasing the level of gasoline taxes, for example. In America, we pay so little in gas tax, it's not a very useful lever. So I think it's mostly for political, how should we say, expediency. The idea of price controls, now we tried price controls in oil. It was an utter disaster. And you know, credit goes to Jimmy Carter. And then later, Ronald Reagan, who lifted oil price controls in said America, I think, on, a, on the right path on energy policy.
1: All right. Thanks both. In a minute, we'll go back to a look at a year when the federal government did manage to pass major environmental legislation. But first, the usual reminder, you really should subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. This show is just a real tiny taste of all of the things that we do. And you can find the best offer at economist.com slash US which is the link to subscribe. And it's also in the notes for this episode. In 1969, with one small step, Americans reached for the moon and saw the future.
4: very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder.
1: But back on Earth, some were realizing that the future might be bleak. The bald eagle, beloved emblem of a nation, was on the verge of extinction. Lake Erie had been declared biologically dead. In Cleveland, the Cuyahoga River was so polluted it caught fire. And in Santa Barbara, the largest oil spill America had yet seen turned 35 miles of Southern California coastline black.
4: It has really deteriorated. It's a a bad situation. It's a complete mess throughout the, the marinas.
1: It was all a bit of a shock for the newly inaugurated president, Richard Nixon, on his first visit back to his home state. Brow furrowed, hands deep in the pockets of his suit, he poked at the sludge with the toe of one shiny Oxford. It was the year Americans woke up to their impact on the planet, and it changed the direction of Nixon's presidency.
4: In the next 10 years, we shall increase our wealth by 50 percent.
1: The environment hadn't featured at all in the campaign, but in his first State of the Union speech in January 1970, it was front and center.
4: The great question of the 70s is... Shall we surrender to our surroundings? Or shall we make our peace with nature and begin to make reparations for the damage we have done to our air, to our land, and to our water?
1: The pivot made sense. After all, Nixon was just giving the people what they wanted. For the first time, the environment had leapfrogged race and crime to rank in the top five concerns for voters. In April, 20 million people, or 10% of America's population, took part in the first-ever Earth Day demonstrations. It wasn't clear why
4: the state police ordered the demonstrators out, but they were leaving when, for no visible reason, trouble.
1: Nixon didn't have a majority in either house, so environmentalism promised precious common ground, for an America roiled by counterculture and protest. The
4: quality of our life on this good land is a cause to unite all Americans.
1: In a flurry of activity, he created the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, and signed into law the Expanded Clean Air Act, which gave the federal government the right to set air quality standards and limit emissions for the first time. He followed up with the Clean Water Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, and the Endangered Species Act, helping to bring the bald eagle back from the brink.
4: These problems will not stand still for politics or for partisanship. They demand to be met now.
1: The race was on. Over the next couple of years, Democrats and Republicans battled to outgreen each other. And in 1972, environmentalism was a major presidential campaign issue for the first time.
4: And to canoe on the Allagash River in Maine is to understand what it means to have clean air and clean water and a decent environment for everyone. Ed Muskie has written virtually every major piece of environmental legislation passed by the Congress in the 20th century. Muskie for the country.
1: But once Nixon had his landslide, he had other priorities. Worried that he was giving too much to the left, he pulled back support for anything that sounded like big government. And by 1973, he had other problems.
4: World wars among big powers are quite possible to control dwindling oil supply. In the Dallas area today, dealers raised prices to more than 40 cents a gallon.
1: An oil embargo by Arab countries over American support for Israel set off a national energy crisis.
4: The capacity for self-sufficiency in energy is a great goal. It is also an essential goal, and we, are going to achieve it.
1: Energy independence and security were all anyone could think about. And another short year later, scandal drove Nixon from the White House. Since then, the task of building consensus has become even harder, as the scientific focus has shifted from visible pollution now to global climate change over the long term. Moments of broad popular support for new environmental laws have proved vanishingly rare in the absence of new legislation the federal government's main tools for tackling climate change are still the headline achievements of 1970 the epa and the clean air act expanded in 1990 and again after a supreme court case in 2007 to include greenhouse gases legal battles over its reach and power continue and today as in 1973 fears over energy security risk driving further progress off the agenda altogether. So Idris, you've been watching this administration very closely. What has Biden actually done on climate so far?
2: Well, he's done much less than he's promised. I mean, rhetorically, this administration is the polar opposite from the previous one, more committed to international obligations to reducing emissions, and, you know, is committed to rejoining the Paris Climate Accords. But in terms of its own action, I think that not so much has been done. Um, That's partially because the president's entire legislative agenda has been stuck. And uh, it was in the form of this package called Build Back Better, was supposed to include hundreds of billions, possibly close to a trillion, in climate-related spending. They've done a little bit of, of, of stuff on the executive action front, things like change the way that the federal government buys cars that it uses for itself. But it's nothing near what's necessary to meet the ambitious decarbonization goals that Biden had when he was a candidate.
1: Do you agree with that, Vijay? Do you share Idris's addresses- a negative grade on what the Biden administration has done to date. What do you think the prospects are for them doing anything further?
0: Your framework of uh, grading them, I think, is a is a good one. But it depends on if you're grading on a curve or you're grading on an absolute level, right? If you look at the constraints on the administration to act, it's a 50-50 Senate. Uh, you have an extremely obstructionist uh, Republican party in Congress that is actually out of step with its own base. Lots of polling shows that Republican voters actually do care about climate now, majority of them, and are supportive of clean energy in even higher numbers. And yet you won't get a single vote to support climate legislation in this Congress for political reasons. And the Joe Manchin problem, which we can get into, Senator Manchin, who is a Democrat, but very much opposed to lots of the things on the climate agenda that the Biden people want to do. So if you take into account the constraints within which Biden is operating, I would actually give him a more positive assessment, let's say, than perhaps Idris might. The U.S. is now integral to the U.N. IPCC process. On the domestic front, we do now have clear targets. Administration under Biden has set a target to cut emissions by at least 50 percent from a baseline by 2030, and that's significant. That's a mobilizing goal. There are new rules on uh, super pollutants that is not just carbon dioxide, which we tend to fixate on, but specifically methane, which has gotten a lot of attention from science, and that the administration has been able to get the oil industry to buy into. So I think you do see a number of areas where there's progress, but is it enough? Of course not.
1: So, Dries, you've been following the incredible shrinking Build Back Better bill. And when you look at Manchin and the other key people in the Senate who would need to support a bill for it to move forward. Is this something that actually might happen this year?
2: Well, if it doesn't happen this year, it's never going to happen at all, given the current uh, trajectory of, of American politics and the likelihood that Democrats are going to lose unified control. I think that while there might be conversations that are going on, you know, there's nothing close to actual legislative text. There's nothing close to hearings that have begun... I mean, we're debating a phantom piece of legislation at this point. It might materialize, but i'm 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 a little bit uh, skeptical, as maybe you can tell.
1: <laughs> okay. I want to talk more about the contours of this phantom to really push the metaphor too far because VJ, you and I were chatting earlier this week, and I was really struck by how much even a slim down build back better bill could achieve on climate. What would the main impact be and what are the main tools that would lower America's emissions?
0: First thing to say is uh, I think Idris is right to remain cautious about the prospects for any kind of legislation with ambition this year. Having said that, uh, I've been talking to lots of people on the Hill in the last week, and there is a buzz amongst Democratic uh, staffers, committee members looking into how they could revive a skinny version of Build Back Better. It would extend the tax credits and other forms of support for a variety of clean energy technologies for a decade. At the moment, things like support for wind is stop, go. Every couple of years, Congress has to renew this. And so investors have a lot of uncertainty in the way that clean energy has been supported in the past. Uh, Policy certainly is very, very good for getting long term investment. The second thing it would do is at the moment, the way that policy support is involves uh, fiddly rules in the tax code that mean that a lot of utilities, for example, don't have the tax structure to take advantage of some of these or a lot of these subsidies and they go unused. The new rules would fix that. So basically, it would be money in the bank. And the third thing that's actually very good is under a proposal from Senator Ron Wyden, this would shift support from being specifically tied to individual technologies to over time becoming technology neutral support. One of the big problems historically with this sort of carrots approach is that eh, you get captured by elite interests, right? Companies and technologies that have the strongest lobbies tend to have their hooks into whatever subsidies are being handed out by shifting over to objectives like decarbonization rather than specifically wind, let's say, or just one kind of technology is going to make a really a powerful transformation in American energy policy. Analysis by a group at Princeton uh, that does modeling on this sort of thing shows that if just the infrastructure law is in place, the new infrastructure law, it might go just maybe 10% of the way towards reaching the goals that the Biden administration has set for U.S. decarbonization by 2030. Whereas if Build Back Better Light were to pass, it would actually get America most of the way, it would dramatically closer to that ambition.
1: I'm going to stop you there because we'll be back in a moment to explore... What can be done to limit climate change if the federal government doesn't do anything? So, we're going to look at state level action.
5: It's that time of the year. Your
6: vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves
1: People always like to say that states are the laboratories of American democracy. In the case of climate policy, given the lack of federal progress, it's particularly true. Our colleague Aaron Braun, who covers the West, has been reporting on just how much can be learned from the subnational level. In the state that is most often pointed to as a leader on this, California.
7: In California, Mary Nichols is known as the Queen of Green.
5: I managed to create drama wherever I go, I
6: think. (laughs)
7: She was twice head of California's Air Resources Board, which is the state's air pollution regulator, and it's fondly known as CARB. That seemingly mundane role put her at the forefront of decades of experimental climate policy that have earned California the reputation of America's greenest state.
5: Well, I I suppose that the most obvious date that you could pick would be 2006 when AB32 was passed by the California legislature and signed by Governor Schwarzenegger. And Governor had his photo on the front of Newsweek magazine holding a globe on his finger.
7: AB 32, or Assembly Bill 32, required California to cut greenhouse gas emissions to 1990 levels by 2020. It was the first such legally binding target at anything like this scale.
4: When we sign this bill, we will begin a bold new era of environmental protection here in California that would change the course of history.
7: It launched California as a model for others to follow and the former Terminator and his Green Queen as climate warriors on the global stage.
5: I went to Switzerland in 2007. There was a banner that stretched across the main street that said, Mary Nichols. Schwarzenegger's right hand comes to Geneva. I mean, literally, we had the town hall auditorium packed with people wanting to hear what California under Arnold Schwarzenegger was gonna be doing about climate change. It was a big occasion.
7: California hit the target set by AB 32 four years early and then set a new, more ambitious one. Now, only New York has lower emissions per person. But the state's role as a green laboratory goes back much further. CARB was first created when Ronald Reagan was governor in the 1960s to deal with the poisonous smog plaguing Los Angeles. And because California was the only state to regulate pollution before the federal government, it's been allowed to keep setting its own stricter pollution standards. And those standards are now followed by 16 other states and more than half the country's population. Champions of the California model argue its influence is not just national, but global. Our
6: kind of closest work, I would probably point to Mexico and Canada, but we also have uh, a long track record of work with China and a variety of EU member states.
7: Lauren Sanchez is the chief climate advisor to California's governor, Gavin Newsom. Uh,
6: For example, the Beijing Environmental Protection Bureau, we spent significant staff time with them to the point where now Beijing's air pollution standards essentially look like Californians just translated into Mandarin.
7: The governor's latest budget continues the state's green ambitions, with $22.5 billion earmarked for climate-related things like electrifying transport and shoring up public transit infrastructure. But recently, some people have argued the momentum has slowed and that California's big achievements, like the cap-and-trade system it started in 2013, are long past.
2: I think it's one thing to kind of to set goals, right, um, which we've done a great job of. Um, It's another thing to actually, you know, attain those.
7: Anthony Rendon is the speaker of California's State Assembly, the lower house in the legislature.
2: Children in my district have a shorter life expectancy than kids in other parts of, uh, of L.A. County. That's specifically because of the five, six freeways that run through my district.
7: Last year, an audit found that data collection errors had led to CARB overstating emissions reductions from electric vehicles.
2: We haven't addressed. Uh, you know, what is essentially the elephant to the room, which is, which is oil, uh, oil in the oil industry.
7: At the same time, Californians are painfully aware of the effects of climate change through wildfires and drought, extreme heat and rising seas.
6: Only 6% of Californians think we're doing enough on climate change.
7: And Lauren Sanchez notes the threat from extreme weather isn't the only challenge that could prove existential.
6: Californians are facing the climate crisis, but they're also facing an affordability crisis, a housing crisis and an income inequality crisis.
7: These things might not seem connected, but they really are, especially in California. Some legislation meant to protect the environment has been used by NIMBYs who don't want their neighborhoods to change to block transport and energy and housing projects that could make life cheaper and greener.
6: One of the barriers is how can California make sure that we're not um, you know letting the affordability and housing crisis kind of further our, our climate woes, so to speak?
7: High energy costs have thrown these contradictions into sharp relief. While the rest of America is wringing its hands at $4 dollar gas, California's can only dream of that. This week, the state's average price per gallon was five dollars and seventy cents. The governor has proposed sending $9 billion in fuel rebates to car owners. And as energy prices rise, figuring out how to decarbonize without hurting Californians is not going to get easier. Over the years, California's climate warriors have hoped the federal government would follow their lead. But as Congress continues to sit on its hands, the Queen of Green, Mary Nichols, remains determined.
4: Our
5: projects, our programs were designed to be models for others, uh, we're very committed to the idea that we should be able to hold up what we're doing and say, you know, this should be done everywhere.
1: Vijay, California is definitely a model, and some point to it as a model of what to do and others what not to do, because the state does have higher electricity prices, for instance, than others, and certainly than the national average. So how transferable is the California model and is it advisable to try to emulate California?
0: First thing to be said is that state level action, whether by California or any other state, is useful uh, in that laboratory democracy approach, that is to innovate, to try new things, but ultimately will not solve the climate problem for America or any other country, subnational levels, because you need national legislation. The reason is simple. Interstate commerce, leakage, climate change doesn't stop at the borders of California. If they have policies that, for example, raise electricity prices or impose some curbs on, on greenhouse gas emissions, companies can leave and go to Texas or Arizona, which they have done, and we've written about this. Having said that, Uh, It's really fashionable to beat up on California in various ways as high tax and, uh, you know, sort of uh, generally excessively regulated. All that's probably true. But when it comes to climate change, I think California is a shining example of a success in America. And it's worth saying that California has been able to grow its GDP about 60 percent in the last 20 years, even as its greenhouse gas emissions per head have declined by over a third in that same time period. That's an astonishing success in its own right, especially when you weigh it against the record of the remaining 49 states. Uh, It puts it positively in the middle of the European Union. A number of these policies can and are being emulated. The cap-and-trade system, which is regulating uh, greenhouse gas emissions, the eastern parts of the U.S. have uh, something called REGI, which is a regional approach that Mid-Atlantic and northeastern states are using. They've been able to show Uh, dramatic declines in greenhouse gas emissions in the sectors that are covered in eastern part of the U.S. And so I think uh, there's a knock-on effect, demonstration effect. They're going to get it wrong, maybe pay too much, but they'll set the lead for a lot of others to follow.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you noted the cap-and-trade system in California and Reggie in the Northeast on cap-and-trade. I've been struck in looking at American states, about half of them now have some kind of greenhouse gas emission target. Uh, including a net zero target, for instance. So New York state where I'm situated has a net zero greenhouse gas target for 2050. Uh, You see states from Nevada, even Louisiana, Pennsylvania setting some kind of greenhouse gas emission target. Of course, the politicians who set these targets are usually not the ones who are going to be responsible for meeting them given how far out they are. That's been the criticism to date of those kind of targets. But you do see states now really trying to think about how to get from A to B, how to get from their current level of emissions to shorter term interim goals by 2025, for instance. So I'm curious what you think, Adris, about the ability of states to dramatically reduce their own emissions without assistance from Washington, without real assistance from federal legislation.
2: I think the states have had to go it alone in large part because the federal government is no longer able to do big sweeping legislation like the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act. Um, What the federal government has been doing under Democratic administrations is try to use this legislation and try to reinterpret it using executive authority to increasingly maximal uh, degrees. So we saw this under the Obama administration, most notably with its Clean Power Plan. And the problem with this method of doing it is that it's, it's not very durable. So we saw the Trump administration very aggressively rolled back Uh, environmental rules that have been put into place. And what we see from the start of the Biden administration is that its executive agencies have been very busy undoing all of the mess that the Trump bureaucrats put into place. So that's rules on mercury emissions, uh, fuel emission standards for cars and heavy vehicles, all manner of, of new rules that are being put into place. That's what a lot of the administrators of the EPA have been focused on undoing. What we haven't seen yet is an attempt to create something like a clean power plan, um, which basically reinterpreted the Clean Air Act in quite a sweeping way and would have imposed, at least on the electricity standard, fairly strong uh, emissions reductions targets. That was being actively litigated before the, the transition of power happened. And if they attempted to do something that was very sweeping, something like You know, as ambitious as California or Reggie, I'm sure that would get litigated again. And, um, you know, given the current makeup of the Supreme Court, I think that it might not ultimately be successful.
0: I'm going to make a a prediction here. Uh, I will predict that America's greatest contribution to fighting climate change will not be policy innovation in Washington or even at the States, but rather private sector innovation, technological advances, startups scaling up financial innovations, I think that the U.S. has a phenomenal capacity to innovate. And it has been retarded in this area because there hasn't been a clear signal from government. But when I, so I spend a lot of time in, you know, the dens of engineering workshops and Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and VC worlds, um, and also the the big companies that are supporting uh, the ecosystem of tech innovation and climate. And I'm incredibly energized. I almost feel like I'm in a reality distortion field whenever I go and spend some time with climate innovators, energy storage, for example. Uh, Most of the world's most promising energy storage, um, grid-scale energy storage uh, innovators, are American or American funded or are foreigners who came to America to coalesce, to build and trial their companies. So being that hotbed of innovation, as they get towards scale, they can be deployed in every country in the world, solve problems around the world. And so it may not actually end up putting America as a country at the leading edge of cutting its own carbon emissions. But I think America will play a huge part of that uh, solution for the world.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, Vijay. And I think it's also worth noting that to the extent Republicans do support action on climate, they support investment in energy innovation. And at the end of 2020, there was quite a lot of money that was directed to energy innovation, supporting R&D. This is something for which there actually is bipartisan support. But I think just to go back to the point on the private sector, that you do see movement not just in the firms that are focused on climate innovation, but also more broadly across America's economy, attention to climate change driven in large part by these giant investors like BlackRock, State Street. I wrote this week about the shareholder proposals that American companies face this year. Uh, The number of resolutions that have been filed on climate is up more than 40% from last year, which itself was a record. And that's happening in the absence of rules from the SEC on climate disclosure. The SEC itself is trying to advance those rules now. So I think that you're going to see a lot of action on climate. It's just not probably going to be action from the Hill. Okay, on that note, it's the moment that I've been waiting for since this podcast started, my chance to ask the questions in the quiz, which means that they're going to be entirely on the extended catalog of Stephen Sondheim. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding. Okay, so The Economist first mentioned the word decarbonization in May 1936. Needless to say, it wasn't in an article about the environment, but in one marveling at the progress of the internal combustion engine. The earliest versions of those engines would get clogged with soot and need frequent, quote, decarbonizing. Question one. One presidential innovation enabled by the internal combustion engine has been the presidential motorcade. But who was the first American president to own a car?
2: Can I guess
0: Wilson? Vijay? I, well venture that it was uh, not till FDR was the president owning his own personal car.
1: It gives me great pleasure to say that you're both wrong. It was William (laughs) Howard Taft who bought four cars and had the White House stables converted into garages. He even bought a fully electric car, which was the Baker Electric Runabout the first president to actually ride in a car was McKinley.
2: Jeez, cars are old.
1: (laughs) I know, turns out. Question two, Taft was not an athlete, but he did inaugurate a presidential sporting tradition. What was it?
0: Was it the annual
2: bathtub race? Yeah, he wasn't a known sportsman. Does the Easter uh, egg roll, which we recently have, count as a sporting event, or...?
1: Wrong yet again, uh, throwing the opening pitch of the baseball season in 1910 between the Washington Senators and the Philadelphia Athletics. Presidents Carter, Trump, and Biden are the only three presidents not to have done so.
0: I I just want to say, I think Joe Biden has thrown out a first pitch, but when he was vice president.
1: Amika, our producer, says that you are indeed right on that.
0: So, but perhaps I should be our uh, baseball editor rather than energy editor, given my greater knowledge of this topic.
1: (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Vijay. And thank you, Idris.
0: Thanks, Charlotte. Thank you.
1: And thank you to our producer, Amika Shortino-Nolan, and our sound engineer, Nico Raufast. If you like Checks and Balance, please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. We read all of your notes and love to hear from you. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.